Welcome to The Climate Imperative, the podcast that dives deep into the actions and strategies of influential leaders in business and government as they tackle the pressing issues of climate change. Your hosts, Charlie and Michael, bring with them decades of technology and customer journey experience at companies like HP, Citrix, Sage, and Yahoo, and will bring you guests that want to share ideas for a more sustainable and resilient world. Let's go. Meet Jason, an innovative entrepreneur and the director of content and marketing at Smash Brands, a forward-thinking packaging design company. Smash Brands designs, tests, and optimizes packaging with consumers so brands can be sure it sells before it hits the shelves. At Smash Brands, Jason and his team specialize in designing, testing, and optimizing packaging solutions. And they do this by gathering consumer insights and ensure that packaging not only catches the eye, but also persuades customers to choose a specific product over the competition. Does that sound about accurate, Jason? Perfect. All right. Well, that wraps the show for today. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could. Uh, I need. I should have taken notes and put that into our CTA or something. I'll go ahead and I'll send it over to you afterwards. You can go ahead and, and use it. We do appreciate you coming on. Could you expand upon a little bit about that and just let the audience know who you are and a little bit about your role at Smash Brands? Sure. So Smash Brand is, we like to call it a data-driven brand development agency. And the heavy focus inside of that brand development is packaging design. We do offer a number of services outside of that. Uh, We are different than most design agencies uh, in that we do significant consumer research, but we also do significant consumer testing. And so that eliminates brands from having to go to multiple different sources uh, in order to get a packaging design that's ready for national retailers. But it also allows us to continue testing throughout the process instead of getting to the end, performing testing, and then ending up with what we think is a good result. Our testing process occurs throughout the design process, which gives us a much better final product that's ready for retail. You talk about data and you talk about the process. Can you share what you can share about what that process might look like? So say Charlie came to you and said, you know, he has product A and he wants to get it into, you know, this chain of supermarkets. Um, what would that look like from from his perspective? Essentially, our job is to remove subject subjectivity right off the bat. So brands will come to us with their perception as to what they need to do and what the design should look like and what the copies should say. And so on the consumer research side, we're really looking to validate or disagree with what they're saying. And and we like data to drive that process versus puffing our chest and saying that we think this is a better idea. We really, we even remove subjectivity from ourselves. And then as we go into the testing, it always starts with copy. And so it's going to be the messaging. And we're, we do what's called packwords testing, where we're testing message variants across a whole number of different concepts. And then as we get tighter, we'll test smaller variants against the winning concept uh, in terms of copy. And then it moves into design. And, and in the design process, we will do what you typically see for like maybe six to eight versions narrowing that design down, testing again, narrowing that down. And then ultimately we get to purchase intent testing and purchase intent testing is to determine how, what's the likelihood that this consumer isn't going to say, I like this product, but is actually going to purchase this product in comparison to the 
retail competitors that our clients will will be up against in the real world. I see Charlie nodding his head because I'm, I know you're touching upon some some verbiage that he absolutely loves. Charlie, do you want to yeah. give just a little, a little hint of what your background has been for the well, last two decades? I, I came from a usability testing and UX design world, and then that moved into customer journey and actually mapping customer journeys and then taking making sure we had data all the way along that journey and involved a lot of qualitative um, research with actual customers as well. But yes, you have to remove that bias because customers want to please you and tell you something they think they want you want to hear too. So you got to get down to the nitty gritty and really look at the numbers. It's very much what you would see in any form of digital marketing or just digital presence. It's just not done so often on yeah. a packaging design for retail and definitely yeah. not through this process. In the yeah. digital world, Jason, you know, we can look at things that are in the analytics platforms and understand kind of what in I, I know people know as an A-B test and what that data is telling you in a tangible world with product. What does that look like? So we will go out and find as close to the target audience as possible. Very specific. We're going to really make sure that it's the consumer that's most likely to purchase their product uh, and should frequent the channel in which they're selling through. Then we will run them through a series of questions and where we're not only asking them the questions, but we're and through a visual experience but also monitoring what's going on, where they're moving, where they're tracking, understanding both what they say and what they don't say in terms of influencing that purchase intent. Essentially, we're trying to replicate what occurs in the real world so that we are getting as close to real world purchase intent as possible. Um, sustainability has become a major focus in the consumer packaging industry. How do you prioritize sustainability goals in your marketing efforts? And is that coming into the fold uh, a little bit, a lot more? Are you feeling a, a more demand for that? So every brand is aware of what they need to do. Well, they're, they're aware of their need to become more sustainable. They don't necessarily know what to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean it should live right below the product name on the front of the package. And so several years ago, it was just really common that putting sustainability on the front of pack doesn't actually increase purchase intent. And in fact, if it's met with a higher price, could detract people from buying if it's not the right target audience. That was a few years ago. So the media really, you know, sustainable, sustainable, sustainable in packaging design. And sometimes the media is is ahead of what actually what consumers actually do. But like in all aspects of life, the media tends to influence, right? And so as the media influenced, more brands got involved in becoming sustainable because if you're going to put it on your package, you probably should be doing it. And so, so that led to more awareness, more brands doing it, but they weren't necessarily reaping the rewards at that time. But now consumers are more aware. And I would say that it's probably is still category specific. So... I don't know, like putting sustainable on your batteries may not lead to greater purchase intent right now, but putting sustainable on clothing is obviously, that's a category where we're going to see the needle move if you're promoting that. So yeah, so so in this current time, we're not to the point now where every brand needs to to showcase sustainability on the front of the package, but 
it's some brands will and then most brands are going to put that on the back of panel or side of panel uh and to to get people from that consideration phase to in the cart phase it's an interesting question you brought up charlie because i think jason based on what you just said there's a bit of irony in the way that it was because Putting sustainable on a package doesn't necessarily mean it's going to sell, especially if there's a higher price attached, right? That's essentially me paraphrasing what you said. And the irony there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have pack of products sitting around, sitting around, doesn't sell. What happens to it? It gets tossed, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this, there's this excess waste that is the byproduct of what was initially good intent. And so I guess the question I have for you part of what you do maybe and maybe this is one of your uh, your your tenant goals as an organization whether you know it or not is that by testing product and almost ensuring that it's going to sell better one design is going to sell better than the other you're also potentially mitigating that sort of what do you, what do you is there a phrase for it like product that just dies on shelves you call it shelf rot or is there a name for that uh delisting uh yeah uh, shelf rot's probably a a lot funner way to say it, you know, in our world, uh, it just ends up at discount grocery, right? So it's gonna, mm -hmm. it's gonna end up being sold for one tenth of the cost of production just to get it out. And it'll end up moving, uh, it becomes a loss, it does, there's no break even. So break break even from a from a financial standpoint, but are you or does the brand, I guess that would be the brand, are they able to actually track that side of the value chain? Are they able to see that kind of throughput that it does convert? Because I know Charlie and I were speaking with somebody in the apparel industry, what was it, like three months ago, Charlie? We were having this mm -hmm. mind-blowing conversation with this uh, gentleman who used to manage global supply chain for a major retailer. And he was talking about how the fashion industry, 60%, I think he said, ends up moving into sort of a second-tier market. And then after that, half of that ends up moving over to landfills in developing nations because stuff just doesn't move, but there's very little visibility into that. Do you know if your customers are able to track that or if it's just kind of anecdotal at this point, once it leaves that sort of primary market, I'm sure. I'm sure that they can continue to get reports, and I don't know what the process is if it if a discount grocer what they do with it. But I'm I'm pretty sure that they're going to have access to that information, um, whether they have the team size large enough to acquire and make sense of that information could be different. But yeah, they they should have access to it uh, unless they're selling it internationally overseas or anything like that, then it's probably going to be lost. Now, is there a, is there a pressure to actually, you've, you, it's focused more on grocery. Is that more of the focus that you have? Yeah, we're CPG predominantly. Yeah. So 95% of our work is consumer packaged goods. I will say that we're saying sustainability from a, uh, like that's the word that everybody puts on pack, but that's part of the problem is that it, just like, an organic saying organic that's white noise and so now if brands want their sustainability to be seen well they need to phrase it a little bit differently they need to come up with a unique way in order to talk about it to where it does reach the consumer and so you could be talking about a single aspect within your sustainable efforts that could influence the uh the the customer more than just putting sustainable on the package. So one of the developments I've seen is uh, one a major supplier in the UK is Tesco Sainsbury's or Sainsbury's or one of the big grocery shops. They are looking at 
the packaging and actually the packaging itself and looking to change removing plastic film. Uh, is there any innovations that you're coming across with actually the packaging itself? Because you're talking more about the labeling and testing the messaging. What is happening, do you think, in terms of the actual packaging and the pressures to become more, really more sustainable, uh, moving away from things like plastics? Yeah, we don't get into too much of that world. Our strategy actually begins when they present their data to us in, in terms of what they're doing for manufacturing, and we will help them flush out how to position that correctly. But I mean, we could we can all see it, right? There's five years ago, shrink wrap, everything that was shrink wrapped was all just terrible for the environment. But now more and more, we're seeing even shrink wrap come about. And personally, every item that I have in the house now, I turn around and figure out what to do with this package. Because before it was very like clear cut, like recycle, trash, recycle, trash. It's not that way anymore. It's not about necessarily, I, th- I mean, I think pretty much every package can can be environmentally friendly. It's to what extent? And mm-hmm. so that's about, that's just on a personal level. I understand that. I know innovations are happening all the time and I love to see the innovations. And I hope every company begins to incorporate those innovations, no matter if they're big or small, right? I think that's, I think the smaller startups struggle with it a little bit because they don't have access to the run sizes or the uh, contract manufacturers that, have access to these materials. But I mean, it's just changing every day. That's where we're at in my own personal perspective. When a customer comes to Smash Brands, are they more interested in packaging functionality or the aesthetics of the packaging or a blend of both? And then I think the the where I'm going with that is when you talk about the packaging, right? It, is it the colors, the fonts, the combination of all these different kind of pieces of the puzzle and how you guys are saying, you know, we're going to click these together like this, but this is going to be another version over here. How different are the A's and the B's in terms of the designs? I know there's a lot there, but I think it's all kind of linked. So if we are helping a brand from inception, let's say like a previous product was uh, MCT oil and the MCT oil spills everywhere when you pour it. And so we helped with the concept of making it like olive oil where it's a little bit more it stays within a smaller range. It's still the chance of spill, but it's a lot smaller. And so those types of things we can we can speak to and help put forward as a purchase driver. But most of the time, what we're doing is is taking their positioning that might be beyond just the product itself. It might be about the brand story and it might be about the target customer. And then we're positioning them within that. And so it starts with, like I said, it starts with the words, everything starts with the words. And then the visuals are there to support both, all of which is supposed to evoke an emotion. And so we're trying to get an emotional response before we get to a logical response. That's it. So that's, and it's really fun because you get past the surface and you get really deep into what makes this brand special. And I, I, I got to be careful. We've got too many NDAs for me to talk about what we're doing right now. But the it makes me think of one brand that's just like in a very commodity category and they are doing well in half the country. Their new positioning is, is going to be so powerful for them. It makes me want to have the product in a commodity category, right? And so that's ultimately what we try to do is, <clears throat> is put the brand's best foot forward and show them in a light to what seems what's really interesting about the food industry is that what seems like a like a niche 
ends up being a category explosion, right? Mm-hmm. I always go to liquid death. Like oh, the, yeah. it's just, I oh. mean, the, everybody wants it. Like the 70 year old grandmother wants to try liquid death, but they went very targeted upon inception. And then they, they brought people into that niche instead of staying with their small little crowd and saying, we don't want anybody in. They invited people into their, their experience. And that's what we try to do for brands. I want to have a follow on episode with you where the three of us can just dissect everything that Mike and his team over at liquid death have done right over the last two to three years. And the reason why I think that they are now, and I don't want to get into it now, but why they are now the example of how to do it correctly and just penetrate an already saturated market. The the last question I have about what you were just saying, Jason, is, is it different? Because I know that part of the experience with packaging is tactile. Is it different or the results different e-commerce versus in-store or, or a lot of your customers in both places? I'm assuming they are. E-commerce, you have a lot of support from what exists. Unless you're looking at like Google Shopping, you have a lot of support from what exists on the page. Even if you're on Amazon, you've got extra images. When it comes to retail, it's a tiny little bit of information and then your competitor and your competitor. And you don't really get, a, you don't get much there. And so the prioritization of your messaging is more important in retail than it is. It's still important, but it's more important retail than it is in e-commerce. And so many e-commerce brands will go to retail and they'll fail miserably because they'll just not make a packaging design change and they'll lean on even I'm talking big ones and they'll lean on the existing brand awareness, visual identity, and they'll think that that's going to work in retail. And then when they get positioned and, you know, against the, the top competitors in that retail chain, they just get slaughtered because they're not playing the same they're, they're not bringing the right weapons to to this fight. They're, they're, it works for e-commerce, but it does not work for retail. And so they have to, uh, D2C brands have to go back to the drawing board on their design and figure out what stays and what needs to change. And maybe that means you have to create a separate SKU that speaks specifically to retail and change the size if you don't want to mess with your e-commerce. But you got to do something different if you're planning to go into the Targets and the Walmarts and you know the Kroger's of the world. It's just a different game. How do you envision the next five years? Would you even potentially uh, see that there might even be a carbon footprint score on packaging? Yeah, I think so. I think that that is going to need to be supported by, well, like the dairy has the dairy industry. I think there's going to need to be some media exposure around that and supported and, and invested in by the brands. And then that becomes a logo. And then that becomes something that's important on the front of the package. But I'll say that, like everything, eventually that becomes white noise. Uh, and doesn't it's still super important? But in the consumer's eyes, they see every brand doing it. So then, what's what's the second thing? What's the if that's what people first see? What's the second thing that speaks to that same conversation? And so brands will, which is a good thing. Brands are going to continue to have to push on improving sustainability and environmental friendliness. And they're going to have to keep innovating, which is, it's not a bad thing, right? I mean, we want them to continue to do a better and better job. So, Mm -hmm. so yes, that very well could happen. Uh, But there's Gary Vaynerchuk says, Mike, you know, this, that 
uh, marketers ruin everything, right? So <laughs> what's a good thing a marketer is going to take and a marketer is going to expose and exploit until it becomes common. And then we're going to have to go to the next phase. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. How can people find out more about you and uh, and Smash Brands? We're obviously going to put links in the show description, but where can they find out more about you guys? Smashbrand.com. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, we put out a lot of content. So any resources you need, if you're a CPG brand and you want to learn more about how to get into the big chains and and how to stay in the big chains, importantly, just you can check out our blog, but you can just... Yeah, go there, smashbrand.com. It seems easy when you think about it, right? I want to launch, I want to launch a product and I'm going to get it out there and every store is going to, going to pick it up and it's going to be out there and I'm going to be, you know, selling, you know, a thousand SKUs a, a minute. And uh, I don't think people realize how complex and uh, almost gated that whole industry is. And they really do need a, uh, an ally like Smash Brand and, and your team to, to really kind of start solving for that. Let's just say I wish I knew this stuff 15 years ago when I was a brand owner. Things That's were right. a lot better. <laughs> I really enjoyed your post regarding uh, defining your brand story, emphasizing your own product innovation and so on. So definitely go to Jason's uh, LinkedIn and have a look at his posts. They're really informative. And I really, I, I took a snapshot of that because I was really impressed with it. So thanks for your time for today. Thanks, guys. To learn more about today's guest, we'll include all links in the show notes. This episode was made possible by Riviera AI, a sustainability data company that puts all of your ESG and net zero data into one screen. To learn more about Riviera AI, visit www.riviera.ai. Until next time, thank you for joining us on The Climate Imperative.